Well, for today, uh, we're going to go back, return to our series in Genesis. So I invite you at this time to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 8, and we'll pick up in verse 20, and we will read through chapter 9, verse 17. Uh, This section of Scripture covers uh, God's covenant made with, with Noah. This is an important section, and the Lord inspired his servant Moses to pen these words. And so, brothers and sisters, let's hear what the Lord has to say. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens and upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, This is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. <coughs> Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you for having included this passage in scripture. We thank you for having made this covenant. We thank you that we have a visual, visible perpetual reminder of your faithfulness and your commitment to sustain life. Grant that we would walk by faith and grant that our faith would be increased. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, when last we were in this book about five weeks ago, we observed that the, the sinfulness of mankind had reached epic proportions and violence covered the face of the earth. And so the situation was so egregious that the Lord had decided to essentially start over. And so he washed the earth clean, so to speak, and he caused the flood to occur, destroying all life except for those in the ark. And we saw how God brought used the ark as a, as a picture of, of Christ redeeming his people. It's a means, an instrument of salvation. They were saved uh, through this boat that resembled in its dimensions a giant coffin. And that is a reminder for us of how we are preserved through the death of the one who died, namely the Son of God. And so God brings his people safely through the flood and all life, has been extinguished except for those that disembark from the ark and now here we are and this passage at this point we start to be able to consider life and how life was back then uh, on more similar terrain because things are now operating geologically atmospherically the way they are now so but the way things were before the flood we don't really understand Okay, we don't really understand how, how things grew without apparent rain, and we don't understand how carnivorous animals uh, that need protein, how they may have got their sustenance before. We don't understand all that. We don't understand what environmental conditions must have existed for people to live 900 years. We don't understand all that. But now that we're post-flood, suddenly now the world looks remarkably similar. And so we're going to, as we progress through the chapters that remain, we see how the story that's being told is remarkably similar to our own circumstance in, in every way, except for perhaps the cultural relics that are different between then and now. But still, the culture reflects the human heart, which has not really changed. But in this passage, the first thing we see is righteous Noah disembarking he looks around, and contrary to the scene that Adam would have seen when he first opened his eyes, Adam would have seen paradise when he first gained consciousness and first surveyed the world that God had made. It would have been lush, green, beautiful. Noah comes out the ark. And just a few weeks before, there hadn't been enough dry land for the birds to find home. He would have found carnage. Many of you have seen 
or experienced the after effects of a flood and you know that there's devastation galore. It would have been an almost a post-apocalyptic hellscape. Trees would not yet have sprouted and grown grass. It would have been pretty dreary to the eye. But nonetheless, righteous Noah does not look and see the horridness of the landscape. He considers God's faithfulness to his word. The word that he had delivered to Noah a hundred years prior when Noah commenced work on the ark and how Noah had spent the better part of a century building this ark. <clears throat> he reflected on the faithfulness that God had demonstrated by allowing he and his family to survive the flood, to make it through the many, 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 many months trapped in a windowless, dark, floating coffin with animals tending for them, themselves, how God's faithfulness had been extended to dry the earth so the boat could come to rest. And now they're on the other side of this ordeal. And righteous Noah, his first inclination is not to step outside, shielding his eyes from the bright sun, and then complain about the grass not being green. His first inclination is not to complain about the lack of trees. No, what is his first inclination when he steps outside the ark? To worship. When confronted with his circumstance, his first course of action is not to complain about not having everything the way he would want it to be. His first course of action is to reflect on the goodness and faithfulness, mercy, kindness of God, and to give thanks. So I feel convicted right there. How many of you didn't get what you wanted for Christmas? Did that sour your whole day? How many of you look at the life that God has given to you, and all you can see are the Hiccups, heartaches, hurdles. How many other H's can I come up with? <laughs> but seriously, isn't this kind of a, a stinging indictment of how our hearts operate that we, we can be given so much and all of us have and all we see are the things that displease us. Moses here is a corrective Moses. Moses offers us in Noah here a corrective. Worship. Give thanks for what God has done. His tremendous mercies displayed and outpoured. His preservation. His, sus his sustenance. And worship. And so in this passage then, we're going to see how God sets in motion the, the things, the realities, the parameters, the ordinances, the covenant that guides and governs the human race to this day. And they set the parameters unto which civilization takes place and people flourish. But it all comes on the heels of Noah having worshipped. Just think about that. 
What does Noah do that acts as a picture of Christ to us? Well, specifically here in 820, what does it say? He offers to God sacrifices. And then what does it say of the Lord? It says, when the Lord smells the pleasing aroma, in verse 21. A few minutes ago, our brother Eric mentioned the word propitiation. And this is the first instance of the concept of that where you see a picture here of propitiation in action. Propitiation taking place. It's not just a theological word that theologians have come up with. It's a Bible word in Scripture. And propitiation means to assuage anger, bringing in a positive, favorable disposition. And so the Lord, he is righteous and he is angry. That's, that's the the. The preceding state in God's mind. He is angry at sin. And that's a state of affairs that we do not like to talk about. But the Bible makes it clear that the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. That's actually in the Bible. And for everyone who does not abide in Christ, it says God's wrath remains on them. That is also in the Bible. But in Noah here, we see the sacrificing that brings God's good pleasure, which is a picture of Christ. Jesus is our propitiation. Paul mentions it in Romans 3.25. The author of Hebrews mentions it. John mentions it in, in in 1 John chapter 2. But Jesus, by his blood, takes away God's anger at our sin, at our rebellion, and in its place, God then is favorably disposed. And he lavishes us with his grace and his mercy. And what Noah does here is he propitiates God's anger at all the sin that had come before. And what's astounding is in this passage you see God, based upon the the mediatorial propitiation of Noah, he enters into a covenant of forbearance despite all the sin that's to follow. It says in this passage that he's not going to destroy the world again prematurely. The the, the end comes, but he's not going to destroy the world again, not because they're such innocent, beautiful little cherubs, I just love them so much. And No, in this passage, it actually acknowledges the sinfulness, the unavoidable, inescapable sinfulness of man. And God says, nonetheless, seasons will come. Weather will change. Harvest will occur. Night, day, time. Brothers and sisters, What you see here is God setting in motion that he is going to sustain this planet forbearing with the wicked in patience, loving his enemies. Loving the very ones who at their core 
are committed to attempting to overthrow his right to be God. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. He causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust alike. He is patient with all. And so this is the fount from which will flow this great river, this great mission to the nations. And the elect of all tribes will be drawn to Christ. <coughs> and we are called not to show wrath and vengeance to our enemies, but to emulate God himself and to love our enemies, to pray for them, to seek their good and not their evil, to forbear. Almighty God sets in motion then the patterns for us to follow. But now life is going to be a little different though. Because unlike prior to the flood, uh, unlike prior to the fall of Adam and Eve, we are now a race of sinners. And the cosmos has been scarred. And as we learn in in, uh, in, in, in Romans, the world has been subjected to futility, or I think 1 Corinthians, sorry. Uh, the, the world has been subjected to futility. So things are not the way they were. They're not as they should be, and they're not as they are going to be. But right now, as they are, things are going to be different. And so the Lord reminds Noah and us of some of his creation ordinances. And remember how few months ago now, we, we talked about what creation ordinances are. These things that God entwines with the created fiber, the fiber of the created being, and they govern and dictate life. They don't exist so much as commandments as they're part of the fiber of created order. So that, for example, when he says to be fruitful and multiply, it, it is a command to be followed, but in many respects, that urge to fulfill that command has been implanted in us so we don't have to be told to go make babies. We just go make babies. We don't have to be told to build things. It's, it's in our nature to construct, to create. And that's part of what God has set in motion. But there's a few differences now. When you look at verses 1 through 7, you see this blessing of God. And the bracket in verse 1 and in verse 7 is the command to be fruitful and multiply, to, to procreate. In fact, I love in, in verse 7, when he does the second book in, in verse 7, uh, in, in our American English ESV, uh, it says to increase... Uh, to increase, uh, where, where is it? I'm looking at the wrong. This is what happens when I don't use my technology right. To increase greatly. The English ESV says increase greatly. But I love my British English ESV. It doesn't say increase greatly. It says team. Team on the earth. You get this idea of just, just, just an overabundance. How it's just flowing with people 
And this stands, you got to remember, always bear in mind the contrast. What, what was this being told to the people? This was being told to the people in Israel or of Israel as they were wandering in the desert. Moses was writing to them, reminding them of the goodness of procreation, the original context, and the original context is remarkably similar with the paganism around the world, which is, and it's shocking, and if you pause for just a moment and think about what's told nowadays, it is shocking, but paganism does not see procreation as a virtue. The paganism of the ancient world actually had it in their religious dogma that too many people irritated the, was an irritant to the gods. Too many people ugh, made too much noise. It's, it's like at our house yesterday, the, all the boys were just blah, and they weren't fighting. It was just loud and obnoxious and rambunctious. And, and the pagans believed that too much breeding would annoy the gods. You see the first governmental policy of population control in who? Pharaoh. Contrast the worldview of the pagans with the worldview of Scripture. You never once, ever once, you, you will search in vain for a passage in the Bible that even implies that God prefers lack of procreation. His illusions here fill the earth, teem with human life. God is pleased with the making of more of his images. And so Moses wants the people of Israel to bear this in mind, that when you see or hear of someone getting pregnant and having a child, it is a good blessing this child is. And we should celebrate every birth in our church family. We not only need human beings to keep the population going, but it pleases God. Our God is not the God of the Amorites. Our God is not the gods of Egypt. Our God is the God who delights in seeing his images abound on the earth. So the Lord says, fill the earth. But there's going to be a couple things that are going to be different for you. First, I'm going to give you provision now. Now you can, you can eat anything. And he says, just as I gave you the plants, so now I give you every living thing that swarms, squirms, crawls, flies, swims around the earth. Notice that in this passage, there's no distinction, there's no food parameters regarding clean and unclean food, even though just a couple verses before, Noah clearly had communicated to him that there were clean and unclean things for purposes of sacrifice. But when it comes to eating, <laughs> There was this blissful moment where they could eat pigs, and they loved it. I'm sure they did. They had to have, because who doesn't like pig? Anyway, you can eat anything, just not the blood. And that 
requirement actually finds its way even into the council of Jerusalem in the New Testament that we don't eat the blood because that's the life of the creature and the lifeblood is sacred. And, and then he's going to caveat and switch to even your blood. But we're allowed to eat whatever. But speaking of these animals that you're going to have to coexist with, it's going to be a little different than it was before. See, see now, contrary to how it was back before Adam and Eve fell, and again, we don't really know how things worked in the, in, in the, in the pre-flood world. But now... It says, the fear and dread of you, which this is a whole different word than what the Old Testament uses, what Hebrew uses for how we're called upon to fear the Lord. That word fear carries with it the connotation of reverence. This word that the fear, the dread of you will, will fall on these animals. This is the word for just straight up terror. And it explains why within animals there's this fight or flight mentality when it comes to interacting with humans. How they either run from you. I mean, it's incredible how I can go to a park or something and as long as I stay in my car, and you've seen it too, the window's up, the door's closed, the deer just act like you're not even there. But what happens the minute, it's like the minute they can discern you outside the vehicle. They, they run. Unless they've been in... But even then, once you get too close, or heaven forbid, you find yourself out in the wild and there's something that isn't afraid of you and, the, and it wants to then eat you. But our relationship even with the animals has now become one that's strained. At the end of this in period of instruction, he says that... Uh, he says that I have given them every single thing. You can have them for food, uh, but I have given them into your, into your hand. They are delivered. What this means is that we rule creation, but this phrase implies force and violence. It, exp it, it, it implies all the struggles that we're going to have with creatures. And in fact, in later chapters, you see how wild animals are a perennial threat to the Lord's people, and, and even how people moving westward across this continent were faced with wild animals. It's hard to believe now because modern people tell us that wolves don't attack people, but once upon a time in Europe, they were deathly afraid of wolf packs because they had no compunction with attacking and carrying off people. That's not ancient history. That's just a few hundred years ago. But the Lord is saying we're going to have to use force but they are delivered into your hand. Instead of being these willing partners in filling the earth, you're going to now have a combative relationship with creation. And even those animals that are our pets, we have to train them to do what we want. Even your lovely dog, you have to teach it to come to you. You have to teach a cat to not be feral. You have to, we, we have to train these animals. Even the horses that you like to ride don't naturally want to be ridden. You have to break it to ride it. And so, animals now will become a source of conflict with us. We are permitted to eat them, but life in this world is now going to be governed by this sense of conflict with the created order. 
We've already seen how the land itself won't produce for us the way it should. Now even the animals. And then God says in verse 8 that for his life, for our life, I'm sorry, in verse 5, for our lifeblood, he will demand a reckoning. And in this passage right here, in verses 5 and 6, we see the nascent inauguration of the principles that are going to form the basis of human government. Because in order to keep evil restrained, man is called upon to be the avenger of God. Human life is precious. And for your lifeblood, God demands a reckoning. Notice how it's personal. I will demand a reckoning from any animal and any person. When an, when an animal attacks a human, it is right that it be killed. When an, a human kills another human, it is right that they too be killed because they have attacked and defaced the image of God, which is the height of blasphemy. Think about, if you don't understand that, think about what would happen and how you would feel if I printed out your picture or if you came into my office to see me and you saw that I had poked out the eyes, drawn a target across your forehead, you, you wouldn't feel, oh, he's just expressing his artistic nature, would you? <laughs> no, that image, that image, you know full well that it, there's an extension of you in that image. And so when I have defaced it and drawn a target over it, you, you, would, you would think that I mean you harm, wouldn't you? In some way. When the image of God is attacked, God takes it personally. And we are precious in his sight. And, and one of the things that I find so fascinating about this passage is that in verse 5 it says, uh, From every beast I will require it and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. That phrase there, his fellow man. That is the Hebrew idiom, his brother. What it's showing, it's, it's not teaching universal brotherhood of man in, in, in the early 20th century liberal sense, but what it is stressing is that contrary to the farness of the other, we should be understanding the nearness of the other, that we do come from a common ancestor. We walk the same earth and have the same story. And so when one of the family kills another of the family, it's heinous. And, regard, and even though the offender should have stayed his hand, God calls upon the brother, his fellow man, to not stay his hand. And some say, wait a minute, Ben. We know the Old Testament was so mean and, and so... This is so archaic. We're so much more humane than this. I, don't, I think we've just actually lessened how sacred we think human life is. But some people look at this and say, oh, this may have been true for back then, but, but you see the woman caught in adultery. John 8. 
She was supposed to have been executed, and Jesus, like, says, whoever cast the first stone, whoever, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. And, and so he's abolishing the death penalty. That, that passage is not about that. Jesus, the, the, the whole thing was a setup. The whole thing was one of their stupid games trying to trick and trap Jesus. And Jesus was not playing along with their game. Romans 13 tells us that the civil magistrate bears the sword for a reason. And it all comes back to this. The fundamental purpose of human government is to restrain human evil. Because there is no threat, horizontally speaking, to human prospering, to human security, than the evil of other people. That is not to say government is without sin. That is not to say that at all. But human sin must be restrained, and God appoints government to do that. And so within the context then of, of now regulation to protect human life, opening up animals as food and introducing what's going to be a combative relationship with the created order, we are then to go and prosper. But how do we know that things won't get out of hand again? How, how did Noah know that, that his children wouldn't mess up too bad and God would just wipe them out again? How did he know well, God does what he does then when he wants us to be assured. Remember how we said that God is so gracious to us that even though we should just take him at his word, even though he is fully reliable and trustworthy, nonetheless, he is so patient with our frailties that he doesn't just give us his word. He enters into covenant he voluntarily binds himself. And I hope you understand what is meant by the fact that God says, I set my bow in the sky. And if, yes, he's referencing the rainbow, which is a beautiful thing and we'll talk about in a moment. But this covenant here obligates God. It is unilateral. God is the only one here that's committed to doing anything, that has any obligations placed upon them. God is going to sustain the life, the climate, the weather, the habitat of this planet. And he will not wipe it out again until the end of history. And he sets his bow in the sky and to show his sincerity, to give us reason to, to have confidence upon confidence, he points the business end of the bow at himself. So understand, brothers and sisters, God wants you to know that you can be comforted and encouraged knowing that his word is secure. It is a universal covenant. We call this in verses 8 through 17 the Noahic covenant, even though it's not really made with Noah. He's the human agent, the human intermediary, the human intercessor, but Repeatedly, God says in this passage, this is with all creation. God is making a covenant here with the created 
order. Even in verse 11, when it says, with you, the you is plural, which follows on everything from verse 10. So it's with you, your sons, your, all these animals, with all y'all. Unfortunately, the ESV doesn't like using southern vernacular, but that's the perfect second person plural. And it would say all y'all if it was into southernisms, but God is faithful and kind and forbearing with all his creation. And this covenant is not displaced. It goes on to this day. How do we know? I still see rainbows. And here we're introduced in its most basic elementary form to the concept of a sacrament. This rainbow is a sign and a seal of this great covenant. And just like a sacrament that we have in the church, or uh, for those who don't believe, this, this covenant is made with all humanity, and most people don't think of the rainbow as anything special at all. They think of it as simply light passing through water particles and the, the color spectra, blah, blah, blah. It, it's, it's just nothing but maybe something pretty to look at. Nonetheless, the sign abides. And for those of us who understand, and for those of us who believe, Every time we see a rainbow, it is an opportunity to give thanks, to worship, to remember that God is faithful and he will never again destroy all life until the very end. He's patient, not wanting that any of his elect should perish. And so oftentimes... When I see a rainbow, it's, it's, it's pretty to look at, but it's, it's usually come on the heels of a storm. And I'm usually in a state of irritation about something wrong in the world, as many of you are. And my patience wears thin. But then I look and see a rainbow, and I'm reminded, God's patient. God is patient. So even now, in the midst of all the stuff that I see around me that I think is wrong and less than perfect, I can pause and give thanks. Because he's patient with these wicked wretches I see. But he's patient with a wicked wretch like me. He doesn't just write me off. He doesn't just take away my, the grace he's given to me. He's merciful, wanting me to grow in grace and godliness. So he's patient. And that's worthy of praise. So this covenant sets up the parameters and the guidelines that are going to govern human life from that moment all the way to the very end. And to the very end, God is patient. And that's a virtue, brothers and sisters, I think that we, would, each of us, do well to emulate. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your patience on display, your forbearance. We thank you for this great picture of propitiation. And we thank you for sending your son on that rescue mission. And we thank you, Jesus, for being willing to subject yourself to 
heinous death for our sake. We ask, O oh God, that as we live in this fallen world, that we would be more like righteous Noah and worship rather than complain. And that we would be reminded of your patience precisely in the moments when we feel impatient, when we feel agitated and disturbed by human sinfulness. Let us remember that we're sinful too, and you are patient. So grant that we would grow to become more like you, Father. We ask this in Christ's mighty name. Amen.